What's the nature of your emergency? Fire, military, and families, and to everybody tuning in on the Tactical Living Podcast. I am Ashley Walton, and I am joined today with my very good friend, Aaron. Aaron, how are you? I am great, ma'am. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. You asked me to introduce you just as Aaron, so yep. that's what I did. That's However, I that leaves it all up to you to go ahead and tell everybody a little bit about who you are. Yes. Um, so my name is Aaron Terrell. I am from Lansing, Michigan. I was a police officer for 18 years. I was on the tactical team for 10 years. Um, I was an instructor in the police academy and um, just somebody that loved my job like so many of us do. And uh, unfortunately, I, my career was cut a little short, but I'm a father and I'm a husband and just an everyday person. That's awesome. I'm so happy that you decided to come on with me. We had some bantering going on last night. I shared with you one of my biggest fears. And yes. now yes. you're like joking with me about it nonstop, which kind of drives me a little crazy, but that's all right. Little. Is that a 40 inch look? Because I think my, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Cool. So Aaron, if it's okay, can you just walk us through a little bit about your career and, um, that one, that one moment you shared with me two decisions that you made that yep. ultimately changed the trajectory of your entire life. It did. Um, so I come from a family of law enforcement. Um, my uncle uh, worked at Lansing Police Department for 27 years. My cousin, as soon as he got out of the military, started at uh, Lansing Police. He's in the FBI now. Um, but since I was seven, I knew that I wanted to work at the police department like my family. Uh, you know, at 14, I started the Explorer program. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be hired as a cadet. They hired me at 18, um, went through the academy and became a police officer at 20, which is hilarious because in my state, you have to be 21 and I couldn't even buy bullets for my gun or go drinking with the guys after work. That, that, that's for another day. But, um, you know, I was um, on road patrol for about five years, got tired of uh, not being able to do more with the department. So I joined the tactical team and, um, you know, that was pretty much my career. and. There was one particular day that completely changed my entire life. And, you know, here, here I am now. So you want me to kind of go into that then? Okay. So it was March 10th, 2014. It was uh, 4.48 p.m. I had about 12 minutes to go before I went home. And I was just sitting in the parking lot with our <laughs> brand new tactical vehicle that I was told I can drive, but don't mess it up. Because, yeah, anyways, but we uh, getting ready to go in. And my wife worked for Homeland Security and she came back from the CDC. And one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my life, and I'll never forgive myself for, um, we're very CDO, not OCD, but we, she came to the parking lot at the department and we were talking about going to work out and what we were going to do after work. And the mistake I made is I let her get inside the vehicle. Um, and she got inside the vehicle and it was just supposed to be for a couple minutes. That's when we had what we call a felony tone. It's basically like the oh shit tone. <laughs> but uh, we had a uh, Michigan State Police trooper on the highway fighting with somebody and she was yelling that she needed some backup. So like any law enforcement officer, I didn't care about when I was going home or not. I, I was always that guy like so many others. If I was in the locker room with somebody else for help, I'm running out my underpants. I don't care. That's just what I do. Um, the second mistake I made that I'll never forgive myself for is I didn't take a second to kick my wife out of the car. Um, 
So it was, uh, you know, five o'clock traffic. Um, I was going lights and sirens. I was about three miles away and I became very complacent because this is something I've done for a long time. And when I got to the scene, um, I was hit by a car in the middle of the road and suffered a traumatic brain injury. And my wife was injured as well. That's it. Yeah, that, I know that you've shared that with me before, but it's not any easier to hear the second time around. So I really appreciate you going through yeah. that story again. No, I appreciate it. it it's uh, I'm at a point in my life where it's not about me anymore. And that story, I've, I've, I've struggled a lot with a lot of different things. But at this point in my life, um, I've learned that it's not about me anymore because there's so many other people and, you know, law enforcement that struggle with the things that I did. So it's actually comforting for me to talk about it. And I'm very open and can go into detail with it because I want others that are struggling to know what I did and that, you know, I can, if I can make it, they can make it too. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Erin, can you just talk a little bit about the aftermath? So the accident yeah. happened and, and then what took place? So um, the accident happened. Um, essentially, I was in the hospital. I had some broken ribs. I couldn't see out of my left eye for a couple of weeks. I started to experience some changes. I've always been one of those just very open, love people, love to be around people. Uh, never had a temper or anything like that. Um, after... A couple of weeks started noticing changes. I started brain rehabilitation. Did that for ten months, five days a week, six or uh, yeah, six hours a day. And when I was at home, I started noticing things of I just wanted to be alone. Um, I didn't want to touch anybody. I wanted everybody away from me. Started having migraines, like to the point where my nose would bleed and I'd lose vision in my eyes. Um, but the worst part was those damn medications that they gave me because it was a work-related injury. I had to take what they gave me because my mindset was. I don't care what this is and what happens. I'm going back to work. I don't care. So they made sure that I took what they gave me. And I was on the, I, the most powerful antipsychotic meds ever. And those meds, that was, it was horrible. Um, I started having horrible nightmares at home. Um, there were three certain calls that I had dealt with that were just horrific but I could no longer compartmentalize and keep them in the back of my mind. So I started having these horrible dreams and, they told me I had PTSD, and I said no. And in, in, in my culture, and whether police or tactical teams or military, or whatever that, I didn't know enough about it. And I knew the stigma that followed, and it was a nightmare. It was horrible. I mean, it lasted for a year and nine months, and I lost my family. I destroyed my life, but I eventually got my shit together, and I ended up going back to work for a short period of time. Why was that so important for you? Honestly, now I think now I can honestly say I'm in a spot now where I can be open and honest. And I think it, 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 I was put on this earth to be a father and a police officer. And I believed in my job so much. That's all I've ever wanted to do. And I know it might sound corny and I know it might sound cliche, but my guys were my guys. And if I wasn't at work, being the veteran officer or the veteran tech officer, I wasn't there being in control. I could not make sure that they went home safe at night. I had my work phone with me for those year and nine months. And it was my tactical phone. And I was checking on those guys, my guys, every day. And when I was sitting at home taking care of me, it pissed me off because I needed to be there to protect them. And that's my mindset. And it always was. And it, and it always will be. And it still is now. I've just kind of shifted who I'm out 
to protect and what I'm out to do. It, it takes a great deal of effort to go through that rehabilitation and then to right. go back to work, especially going back to a career like this. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like during that time when you were back, yeah. you know, out there serving your community yeah. and ultimately what led to you retiring? You know, first I'll say my department, amazing. They took such amazing care of me. I just, I, I can't even begin to, to thank them enough. Um, you know, I went back to work and um, I mean, I completely defied the odds because every specialist, every person that I dealt with kept telling me, well, you're never going to go back. And I said, well, you clearly don't know me. So I fought my butt to go back. But that diagnosis of PTSD from trauma, that those four letters, I never realized what the stigma was because when I went back, we actually, they had meetings um, about my progress with the city human resources uh, director. And she actually had the guts to say, Aaron, you're not going to come back too soon because I don't need another American sniper case on my hands. And of course, the new me, <laughs> I looked at her and I said, first of all, you don't even know who those two heroes were and you don't even know who you're referring to. But I was in shock. Like, that never happened before. I grew up in that department. And then as I was working, I started noticing people that I never thought would fall into that stigma. It started to become an issue. And I noticed I was treated different. Problem was, with a head injury, I was told by my doctors, now that you go back, if you ever show any kind of signs of normal human emotions to say, hey, you know, no, I'm this was not fake. PTSD is real you're going to be viewed as regressing because of the head injury. So when I went back, I had to bite my tongue so many times and I realized that stigma is true. But what changed me when I went back, I will never forget this. I did not think for one second, this large group of individuals that were ignorant to what PTSD was, would ever come to me in private and ask me for help and asked me what I dealt with and how I could help them. So I turned that into realizing people, if, if they don't know, they it's not that they want to treat you different, they just don't know. And they didn't want to show signs of, uh, you know, uh, not ignorance, but lack of knowledge. I had so many people come up to me and ask me about my story. Well, that sparked me to continue with the Wounded Blue because when I was off, the Wounded Blue saved my life so many different times. They gave me a purpose. So that continued to fuel my fire of, wait a minute, there's so much to learn here from what I went through. Unfortunately, when I went back, um, I was back on the road uh, until August 18th, 2018. And, uh, you know, some cognitive issues had come back that I thought would never come back. And um, ultimately, you know, they put me on administrative leave to be to go through a fit for duty test. And, you know, they medically retired me. But that that fight that I would fight at work to keep my guys safe and that fight to actually help the people we help. That was a fight that I wanted to continue because so many people that pretended to, to treat me differently because they didn't know what PTSD was. They were coming to me in private and they were struggling. And I realized, Jesus, you know what? It's time to get a gut check on me. I can use my story and I can still protect my brothers and sisters in blue. And that's what I want to do. And that's what I will always do. 
That's amazing. That's incredible, Erin, turning such a hardship into a major, major positive. And, and you definitely are. Can you talk a little bit more about the work that you do with the Wounded Blue? Yeah. Um, so basically, when I was off for my time that I was off for that year and nine months, um, the ex they, they were under the mindset, I was told um, on the side by a very high up official in our department, Aaron, we have never had this happen before at the department, the brain injury with the cognitive issues. And they told me, he goes, I know you're going to come back because I know you. And he goes, you're going to kind of be the guinea pig, if you will, because we don't know what to do. So when I was off, they had me on such incredible high powered medications. It, it was horrible. There was some times that, you know what? I destroyed my life. I was an absolute monster at that point in my life. I couldn't control it. Um, I was becoming this person that I would go out to calls and, and protect people from. And I couldn't, I just, I couldn't handle it because I destroyed my kids. I lost my marriage for a while. Everything was going wrong. And I don't know how it happened. Uh, somehow, some way, um, I had one of those nights that um, it was just bad and I wanted to stop hurting people. And a peer advocate from the Wounded Blue called me. And I still to this day don't know who the heck got a hold of them for me. Um, that peer advocate um, is the person that saved my life and got me to realize that purpose that I was thinking was going to be gone as far as being a police officer, what I have done to my family. It wasn't me. And they stuck with me until they got me the help that I needed and hooked up with the help of, with people that work with law enforcement. And my peer advocate never left my side. I mean, he had, when, when we say we have your six, holy shit, that was the absolute epitome of it because he never left my side. And once I got better and I was good for me, I realized I can either sit at home and feel sorry for myself or I can join the organization that saved my life and take what I've been through and do what he did with me. So, um, you know, after I was good for me, they vetted me to make sure that I was, you know, healthy. And I told them, I, I talked to Randy Sutton, um, our founder, and I talked to Eddie Richardson, and I told them, you guys saved my life. This organization saved my life. You never left me alone. I said, when I am done with getting better, and when I get through this, I will be a part of this organization for the rest of my life. And when I got better, they called me and they asked me to join. So here I am. That's so inspiring, Erin. And I mean, I, I know I've told you this already, but I'm, I'm just so proud of you for, for not only being able to show up in the way that you are for other people in need, but just for being able to share your story. I think it takes a really brave person to have gone through and experienced some of the dark, darkest monsters that anybody ever can, and then to be able to talk about it. Well, you know, it, it, and the thing is, first of all, I, I have to say that you're amazing and your husband's amazing and the organization that you've allowed me to be a part of as well is incredible. And what it is, it's, I've learned, it's not about Aaron Terrell anymore. It's really not. What I went through is, it, it was, it was horrible and it was, uh, it was ridiculous. But I realized there are so many people like me, whether it's police, military, fire, that whether they had a brain injury or not, they're struggling at home. And for whatever reason, the culture that we live in, police, fire, military, this whole PTSD or emotional issues are not real. It's it, it's such a 
bunch of garbage. Look at all the police suicides. And I realized all those nights I was at home alone crying. Just you couldn't say anything to anybody because nobody wanted to talk about PTSD. I, I, all I needed was somebody that I could trust. And I'll just say this. I recently found somebody that I can trust. And that person is absolutely my hero and my angel. And that person knows exactly who she is. Um, but I, 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 I didn't have anybody that I could talk to, that I believed in, and that would understand, not sympathize, understand. So my mission now is to, to, to with the Wounded Blue and actually with your organization, is just to get my story out there, not to glorify it, but to say, hey, when you're at home, whether it's self-medicating or when you're alone, whatever you're doing, man, I, I lived a, a great life. I destroyed it and I had nobody to talk to. I just want our first responders or anybody, military, just to hear my story and say, man, we can do this shit. We can do it. We have that mindset that we train for at work. That mindset is not something that is just given to anybody. That mindset carries over into life. And that's what I want to help people that are struggling really. Darren, before we wrap this up, if you were to be speaking to one of those individuals, if it's somebody that's listening now or they listen to this on the replay or they catch on the podcast, who are those people that you could show up for and, and genuinely help? What what kind of signs or what kind of things might they be experiencing that you know firsthand because you've gone through it? So let me, I just want to make sure I'm answering your question, right? Are you saying, referring to what might they be experiencing, what I went through where they might recognize they need my help? So Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I noticed that when I needed my help, or it's not my help, geez, I noticed when I needed help, yeah, see, well, that's a head injury talk, and I'm, it's okay. Um, I noticed when I needed help, when I realized my children were everything, I lived and breathed my children. I knew right then and there I needed help when I didn't want to be around them because I knew I'd be bad for them. I knew I just, I wanted to be alone. I didn't want to see anybody. Um, I never drank alcohol before. I, when I recognized I started to drink more um, or when I would take extra prescription medications, um, that's when I realized I needed help. So what I would say, I will never tell anybody what they need to do or uh, pretend that I'm some kind of a doctor. I speak from my experience. I would say if somebody is noticing they want, the, they want to be alone more, if that's not normal for them, if they want to be alone, they want to be left alone, um, that's something to think about. I would cringe when people would touch me. I, I, I would cringe. If somebody notices, you know, I used to drink two glasses of wine at night or three beers at night, and now I'm drinking six. Or, you know, I have this prescription medication. I'm not feeling real well. Um, I might just take an extra one. When you notice you are doing something and taking something to try to deal with whatever it is you're dealing with, and you start doing things out of the ordinary, it's probably a good idea to ask for help because you don't want to go down the road I did. Um, you know, it, I, that's not, I don't think it's hard to recognize when you need help. It's asking for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we're, we're all very educated in, in what we do when it comes to dealing with individuals uh, in our profession that need help. You know, we respond to calls and we can see what people need help. It's asking for it. That is what I would say. That's the hardest part is asking for it. So just out of selfish curiosity, when somebody Absolutely. contacted you out of the blue, mm -hmm. what made you decide to even talk to them if you weren't even expecting their call? What made you give yourself right. permission to say it's okay to, to get this help? This is something that I would always teach my recruits 
um, when I had a recruit, I would tell them, when you talk to a victim, there's a huge difference between telling somebody you understand and you sympathize. If you haven't walked in their shoes and experienced what they're experiencing, you better not tell them you understand. You better tell them you sympathize. And that was something that always rang really true to me. Um, I didn't have anybody to talk to at all that would understand what I was going through. People would sympathize, but I don't want sympathy. That's, that's garbage. I don't need sympathy. But nobody understood. Uh, my peer advocate at the time called me and the only, I mean, I was done. I was checked out. I had my plan. I knew what I was going to do. It, it, it was there. He called me and he talked to me. And, and I truly believe when you appeal to our uh, profession, we're very cynical. We don't trust anybody. I believe you have about five seconds to capture somebody's trust. And after that, you're talking shit and you might as well walk away. He told me right away something that resonated with me and he understood and he told me and he stayed with me. And just the simple fact that I trusted him and he understood because he told me what he experienced. We, he had my six and he never left my side and he saved my life because he understood. That's, that's what it was. That's, I just needed that connection. That's all it was. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. Aaron, before we wrap this up, if somebody does want to reach out and contact you, is that okay? And if so, how can they get a hold of you? Absolutely. No, absolutely. In fact, it's so important to me that if somebody needs to contact me, I'm going to give you my personal cell phone number, and then I will give you my email address. And uh, now that I'm a peer advocate with the Wounded Blue, and either way, I would answer my phone any day of the night or any time of the night. But So my cell phone number is 517-819. 1970. And anybody, I, I don't care what the day is. I don't care what the time is. That's the best way to get a hold of me. I would love to have somebody call me, text me, and I would love to talk to somebody. Now, my email address is just my name. It's Aaron, A A R O N T E R R I L L at the wounded blue.org. Your buddy, your buddy has your back down there. He already put it in the chat. So thank you. <laughs> I, oh, um, but also I want to say, it, sir, it, I, I would please encourage anybody. I know it's really hard to take that step to ask for help. Anybody listening, please go to the Wounded Blue website. I mean, I was the most cynical cop attitude, mindset, mentality. I, and I would have never asked for help. This organization is the best organization I've ever seen or been involved with in my entire life. I mean, they saved my life and here I am with them now. I would encourage anybody to go to the Wounded Blue website and just look at what we have and look what we have to offer. We have so many amazing peer advocates that have far more incredible stories than I do, but that's we just want to be there because we've all lived it and we can say we understand. That's awesome. Erin, thank you so much. You and I actually have an exit interview, just you and I together. So we're going to hop off of here. But I wanted to thank you so much for coming on and for letting us go live in the group and then put this on to the Tactical Living podcast and um, for sharing your story. So thank you. I can't begin to tell you how incredible you are because you've allowed me to be part of your Facebook group and just simply giving me this opportunity to talk to your audience and just to put my story out there was is amazing and again you are helping me continue my purpose in life so thank you you are amazing and i'm honored and privileged to be here and i would love to hear from anybody at any time thank you thank you so much anytime